and a very warm welcome coming to you from a different location. We're joining you once again at Hyde Park on Other Therana 24. And tonight on our discussion, we will be talking about, again, South Asia. But we have a visiting expert and economist who is in Sri Lanka, who's very fond of Sri Lanka. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, someone from the region who is talking about economics in the region and how the region can be connected and integrated for uh, uh, sustainability and prosperity of our collective. Um, a very warm welcome to you, Dr. Swanim Bagle, uh, Member of Parliament of Nepal. He is also uh, the Chair of the Institute of Integrated Development Studies, a South Asian policy think tank established in Kathmandu in 1979, and a former Chief Economist and Economic Advisor of the UNDP Regional Bureau for Asia, and the Pacific in New York, covering 36 years. And that's a lot. 36 countries. 36 countries, rather. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. But 36 countries, that's, um, that, that's uh, a scope across many regions again. Uh, let's start off about you visiting Sri Lanka. You were here last year at the height of the crisis. Um, you met now President during your current visit, but then uh, when he was Member of Parliament, um, in May 2022. Let's begin there. Yes. Uh, so thank you. It's a pleasure to join you in Diwari. And uh, as you uh, indicated, I have a very fond association with Sri Lanka. I lived here actually for two years during 2005-2006 and have come uh, to Sri Lanka uh, quite frequently for various conferences. But a major uh, consequential visit was last year when uh, the thick of the crisis I was here as the Chief Economic Advisor for UNDP Asia-Pacific and had a chance to address the Parliament of Sri Lanka through one of the public finance committees, uh, interacted with the Governor at the time, but most importantly, I uh, met Mr. Ranil Vikramasinghe, who is now uh, you know, uh, leading Sri Lanka out of this economic uh, crisis as President. Um, so last year, it was very much, we're trying to make sense of uh, what uh, led to this crisis and what could be the path out of this crisis, right? So uh, the, the, the major discussion at the time was how to uh, restock your foreign exchange um, uh, reserves, right? Because that was really at the heart of the crisis. It had been rapidly depleted, uh, you know, for an 80 billion plus uh, economy uh, to have less than, you know, 50 million dollars in the bank. Uh, you were unable uh, to import the basic essentials, food, medicine, and, and uh, all the other fuel. So that was really the immediate thing, and that had led to riots, you know, a lot of uh, political instability. So that had to be stabilized. So the primary focus was there. Then, uh, but as uh, you know, uh, I, I wrote a paper with Premachandra Athukorala at the time, looking at, you know, uh, this is an immediate balance of payments crisis. But if you take a 10-year horizon, then it becomes a solvency crisis because the debt overhang and, you know, how do you become solvent as a country, that was an issue. But if you go back 50 years, then you look at uh, all the other economic incentives that have gone awry, right? I mean, Sri Lanka was one of the earliest reformers and liberalizers in the whole region in 77. Uh, but obviously, you know, some of that early momentum and traction was lost. 
Um, so is there an anti-trade bias in the overall economic structure that is holding Sri Lanka's growth potentials by, uh, behind and all that? So it's a, there's an immediate uh, assessment, there's a medium-term assessment, and there's even a long-term assessment. So it is more uh, as a policy slash academic kind of an exercise. Uh, but of course, the visit last year was very much focused on the immediate uh, assistance and how uh, the big lenders, neighboring countries, as well as uh, international uh, organizations like the IMF um, could come in. And if they were to come in, you know, wh what would be the consequences and we assess the pros and cons. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was a very, very uh, fruitful uh, exercise. And I was uh, very honored uh, to uh, meet him again at uh, this time. Um, that, that sounds like you've been engaging with our authorities since the um, crisis and uh, now. But let's go back to um, your address to the Committee of Public Finance in Parliament you mentioned. What was your engagement like? Was there some sort of assessment done with them on the current crisis back then? I sense that there was a lot of anxiety then, right? So, uh, you know, these are elected politicians, leaders. Uh, you know, Sri Lanka was for a long time celebrated as a success story in South Asia. Uh, and suddenly, uh, to be in this uh, deep uh, morass, you know, uh, that was, I could sense that there's a lot of anxiety and uncertainty and, and what next, you know, who can help us? How can we get out of this uh, together? So there were very uh, seasoned economists there in the room as well, um, and uh, uh, some politicians who uh, were presented as future finance ministers, etc. So it was, and, and the speaker was there, and all very prominent uh, MPs were there. So I was trying to uh, take them tr tr uh, through this trajectory. And what I find this, you know, as a Nepali politician now myself, I find that when an objective foreigner or a foreign expert comes and tells them, it's le there's less baggage there, right? There's more objectivity. Yeah. And if a fellow Sri Lankan was narrating to them the same story, they would be finger pointing, ah, you were in the government at the time, and you know, this and that, right? Whereas an objectively, without taking any sides, you know, so agnostic of the domestic political uh, hiccups, uh, if somebody uh, with, a, with a background like mine, who has a very fond association with Sri Lanka, loves the country, is an avid South Asian, you know, uh, very much as a Nepali is looking up to Sri Lanka on so many of the positive dimensions. I thought, and, and at the time, as a UN uh, chief economic advisor, that, that veneer of uh, sort of neutrality and credibility also. So I, I had a very warm welcome. And uh, the parliament, uh, you know, really publicized the event at the time uh, through the social media handles and all that. But overall, in substance, it was a very rich engagement uh, with the MPs. First, I made a presentation for about an hour, and then there was an open Q&A, which I remember lasted for more than an hour. But, but do you think, apart from how the, the, the anxiety towards this situation, did, did those MPs have an understanding of the situation by then, where Sri Lanka had gone wrong? And with your current engagements, do you see that Sri Lanka has understood uh, the depth of the crisis and have tried or attempted to address this from a point of view of an economist? Definitely uh, your top leadership, right? The governor of the central bank, uh, Bank of Ceylon, and, uh, and the right honorable president himself, they get it, right? They understand it. They're seasoned uh, veterans, experts who've been through you know, a, lo a lot uh, in the last uh, few decades. Um, at the level of uh, 
uh, sort of uh, common MPs, let's say, or other representatives, it becomes a political economic story. So at the top level, you know what ought to be done, what led to the crisis, what are the, uh, what are the economic solutions uh, to this. That's very clear. But the implementation of that becomes a political economic story. So every decision will have winners and losers, right? So people who are used to uh, benefiting from the status quo will tend to resist, right? So this is where uh, the, the more painful, you know, uh, public finance related reforms, civil service reforms, uh, central bank independence, uh, anti-corruption and good governance measures will start to collide with the self-interests or the vested interests of uh, certain groups. And this is why uh, economic reforms are always a painful exercise, not just in Sri Lanka, everywhere in the world. And it takes that historic opportunity, so leaders who can seize that his historical opportunity uh, to really uh, chart a different course. You know, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis in the United States, Ram Emanuel, the first chief of staff to Barack Obama, said, never waste a good crisis. You know, use it as an opportunity to really reorient. In good times, you know, there's no pressure uh, to, uh, to, to make a departure, right? It's at times of crisis that you need to uh, undertake some very uh, unpopular measures. Uh, and, uh, and this is when leadership is tested. And this is when the enlightened citizenry really have to rally behind uh, good uh, economics and good political reforms. Uh, do you think Sri Lanka is actually using this crisis to bounce back or to have a longer-term sustainable growth in terms of the policies and the reforms that we are undertaking. We know that the IMF came back with their uh, first review and uh, the second tranche was delayed. But in terms of reforms, whether it's tax or other uh, transparency, governance-related reforms, are we on track? So, uh, not to the extent uh, that... Uh that was initially uh, conceived. Um, uh, so the IMF uh, has come up with a $3 billion uh, extended fund facility, EFF, and uh, that comes with a series of conditions, uh, especially on the consolidation of your public finance, right? So the revenue or the tax to GDP ratio is fairly low in Sri Lanka. So there are lots of tax exemptions and you know, collection is not strong enough. The enforcement of many legislative measures is not strong. So on average, you, know, you are at less than 10% of GDP. Even my country, which is much poorer than Sri Lanka, is at 20% of GDP, our tax collection. Although it's fragile, it's all taxing imports and all that. Nonetheless, I think Sri Lanka could do a lot more in consolidating its fiscal uh, house. The way debt structuring is proceeding, I think there's some uh, improvements uh, to be had. But in its entirety, if you, if you step back and take a bigger picture, it, it becomes a governance uh, story. And this is where the IMF's governance diagnostic study uh, is exceptionally important, right? They're very candid. They talk about corruption, vulnerabilities, and you know all the other, other, uh, other blind spots in the governance of this country. And uh, that ought to be uh, tackled head on. Uh, yeah. Uh, you, you are from the region. You are one of us. Uh, the IMF um, EFF programs, this is our 17th, and that comes with conditions. And this IMF program is not very popular in Sri Lanka because it, it's at times a political slogan, at times uh, a reason for um, unexplainable conditions imposed on Sri Lanka. And from the citizen to politician, it is believed that the West is imposing 
conditions that are that that a country like Sri Lanka or uh, South Asia should be um, you know uh, no I think the leadership has to do a better job in explaining the circumstances uh, you know you didn't need to go to the IMF right uh, but you had to go to the IMF because there's nobody else coming and rescuing you and when you go to the IMF most countries not just Sri Lanka you're already in a deep economic trouble so the IMF gets blamed for a lot of the mess that the politicians created and they are asked, uh, you know, at the very end, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, when the when the plot has thickened and you know things are in a real, real mess. This is not just Sri Lanka. Argentina comes to mind. Eastern European countries come to mind. But IMF too, in the past, I would say 15, 20 years ago, at the time of the Asian financial crisis, 97, for example, they did get many things wrong as well, right? And when it came to addressing uh, the social side of the economic crisis, you know, vulnerabilities, taking off subsidies, uh, getting rid of social protection measures that are, you know, shielding vulnerable people from uh, the shocks of the crisis. IMF used to be uh, quite insensitive, but I think they've learned their way and there's, uh, you know, these days, while the technical economic merits are being pursued on the one hand, they are also mindful of what that means on the on the social side but i do on balance though you know it's uh, they're all professionals uh, and uh, sri lanka owns part of the ibf we're all you know it's it's not some foreign entity that is coming in it's not a multinational corporation it's a multilateral uh, international organizations all of us have shares uh, and um, and uh, there are Sri Lankan professionals working there, very well-known uh, folks, uh, you know, uh, both at the World Bank and the IMF. So I think uh, this has to be explained to the people that, uh, and if sometimes this ultra-nationalism often gets in the way and, uh, and it's at the detriment of the country. You know, maybe these guys are, have their interests uh, safeguarded and, uh, and IMF becomes a convenient punching bag, right? Uh, but right now, for example, you know, without the three billion coming from the IMF, and they wouldn't just give it to you to again continue the perverse subsidies, just pay back loans indiscriminately, you know, uh, and all that, because that's also somebody else's money. In fact, it's the world's uh, sort of money, right? So, and they have to put conditions, and and their conditions are. Uh, necessary often for the country. Now one could quibble with the sequencing of it, what comes before, what comes next, you know, does it need to be this harsh early on? Those can be debated and this is what the function of the, you know, the, the professionals in the Ministry of Finance, the Treasury or the Central Bank, this is what they do, right? But once you agree on a pact, there's a credible sort of timeline that other investors are also watching, right? And if you start reneging, if you say we'll do it and then you know, it's something to not take on early, you know, uh, in the first place, right? But once you sign and seal the deal, it's very important to follow through, right? Otherwise, that sends a signal that this is not a serious country, that it reneges on its promises, you know. Uh, it's not credible enough, and that's always a problem for developing countries, especially middle-income countries like Sri Lanka, which eventually have to rely on private sources of financing. The concessional window is, has dried up. Right, you know, IDA and others that the World Bank, for example, issues or the Asian Development Bank at highly concessional rates is no longer available to uh, the uh, the middle-income country. I'd like to talk more about South Asia now, but before that, I'd like to go back to a comment you made about Sri Lanka's crisis. Uh, you mentioned that Sri Lanka uh, adopted reforms early on, but did not see the results that we would have or we should have anticipated. Again, was it the handouts or the wrong and mismanagement of public finances or wrong policies that led to 
uh, led Sri Lanka into this in your understanding? If you go back to 77, you know, the early reforms, the trade liberalization, even India hadn't liberalized by then. India was forced to liberalize in 91, right? And uh, now looking back, of course, uh, some of those liberal measures also have to be nuanced and understood slightly differently. But the problem with Sri Lanka, you mentioned that this is the 17th time that I, Sri Lanka has gone to the IMF. You see, if you look at the previous packages, it turns out, uh, you know, programs would proceed and then they would be halted, they would be stalled and not carried through. When it came to a point when the unpopular measures had to be implemented. So, if you do an assessment, objective assessment of many of the previous packages, things have not been complete at all, right? And uh, so that's, that's a problem. So when it comes to taking unpopular measures, uh, I wish the leadership in this country had stepped up, explained to the people, taken the people along. You know, if you look at East Asian success stories, you know, there's a generation or two that have to go through that struggle, right, before a country really uh, takes off. And uh, here it looks like the, some of the, the profligate public finance, uh, you know, generous handouts, uh, perverse subsidies, uh, things like that have persisted because nobody has had the guts to pull the plug or, or, or reorient it into more constructive directions. Because right? that's not very popular. It's not popular. Mm -hmm. And this is where statesmen are born, right? If you go with the flow, mm. if you just follow the mass and not lead the mass, then you are not a leader, right? So it's ultimately bad economics is a result of bad politics, uh, almost invariably uh, everywhere. India, back in 1991, if I'm not mistaken, they didn't have to go back to the IMF again. So if we look at our own countries here in the region, um, sometimes it's, we're ridiculed saying a bunch of uh, poor nations, but this is where really um, there's potential. Uh, the, our, our region has a number of, you know, um, advantages, the best brains in the world. We see brain drain happening uh, to the rest of uh, the world, but this is where it all begins. So how do you really connect all this to see an uh, uh, coordinated and integrated um, growth plan for the region? For the South Asia region? Well, um, India obviously is the major dynamo, you know, as the dominant share of population as well as the size of the economy. So what happens in India will impact uh, the neighborhood, uh, but not to the extent that we would want because we're not as connected uh, as we ought to be. The European Union, if you look at the intra-EU trade, if you look at Mercosur in Latin America, the intra-Latin American trade is much higher. ASEAN, just next door, immense sort of intra-regional trade. In South Asia, this infamous number of less than 5% is still there. Uh, but India, that is partly shaped by the asymmetric size of India, right? So even if we double trade volumes right now, we'd still uh, arrive at around 8% or something from 5 which means because India is so big, right? So a lot of trade within India doesn't count as a, as a intra-regional trade. Um, that technicality aside, uh, we need to do a much better job, both on the physical side of things and on the, uh, the physical and the harder integration and the softer integration. So by hard integration, you know, what about the air connectivities? What about the rail connectivities? What about the water connectivities? And what about the road connectivities? And, um, and then the energy connectivity is also becoming much more prominent and that's actually an area of excitement in an era of climate change as uh, you know, the whole world is uh, seeking to decarbonize during this century. What are the opportunities for clean energy trading amongst the region? And I can speak a little bit about that, you know, how Nepal, Bhutan, India and Bangladesh and possibly Sri Lanka even through undersea cables might actually you know, join the game eventually. Um, 
the softer side is more on the uh, what kind of trade agreements do you have what kind of regulations do you have you know what are the, you know what is your attitude towards non tariff barriers what is your attitude towards non tariff measures right so all these nuances that facilitate engagement and worse than intra regional trade is intra regional investment you know we don't invest in each other's country this hotel happens to be uh, uh, another south asian uh, investment taj itself is a famous indian brand uh, but we have very little of these and i you know the more intense we are in terms of trade engagements investment flows people to people uh, you know uh, connectivity you know i'm so glad uh, to see there's a direct lanka flight uh, to uh, to kathmandu mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. you know when i was working here in 2006 I almost took 20 hours to get here from Kathmandu, go to Bangkok, you know, transit and then the midnight flight uh, to Colombo. It was such an embarrassment. Making it next to impossible for us to connect with each other. Now at least there's a direct yes. flight, you know, three hours. Um, we need much more of this. And uh, so physical and hard infrastructure connectivity and the softer infrastructure in terms of regulations, policies and overall a change in mindset that there's so much to be tapped from each other's complementarities that uh, there's a win-win outcome if we integrated more, if we collaborated more. We don't really look close um, to our neighbors, closest neighbors. We always talk about diversifying into markets, whether it's Europe, um, East Asia, or um, the, the, uh, uh, the United States and the larger American area. But w what barriers are we talking about here? We've been listening to many say, you know, these, these tariffs and barriers are really an impediment to trade. Uh, you've, this, this has been uh, one of your expertise over the years. So I worked a lot on trade issues. Um, so it was fine, let's say, until up to the 2000s uh, to look to the richer markets for trade, right? You, you, if you have products to sell, uh, you sell it to people who can afford it, right? So South Asia was for a long time very poor. So it, was, it made sense for Sri Lankans or Nepalis or even Indians and Bangladeshis and Pakistanis to look for rich, rich country markets. So that meant uh, the United States or North America and, and Europe, right, mostly, and Japan. Uh, but things are changing now. The global center of economic gravity is shifting uh, from the middle of the Atlantic, as Dani Kwa has quantified, has moved to about uh, uh, Poland and Helsinki kind of uh, region. Uh, around 2010 and by 2050 it would have landed that hypothetical point of center of economic gravity would be along the Himalayas in Nepal to reflect the South Asian economic uh, dynamo. You have the Chinese uh, behemoth and you have the Southeast Asian economy. So that's a huge, so that shift means now we have a richer markets in our proximity. So you fly for four hours from Colombo, you, you know, you're probably catering to, uh, well, a little more than four hours, but from Kathmandu, four hours would cater to half the world, which is on average getting richer, right? So that, what is it? More tourists, more investment, more concessional finance, more people-to-people -people ties, you know, other, other forms of engagement, academic engagement, cultural engagements, etc. And that's a good thing for the economy. And, uh, but we haven't, this reality is still uh, being held back by our mindset from 50, 60 years ago where, oh, we need to worry about security, you know, how can we let things open? How can we open our borders? And you know, so sometimes there's a conflict between the security imperatives and the economic uh, potentials right there to be reaped, right? Um, and this is the balance that seasoned uh, statesmen need to make uh, and as, as a collective entity. So SARC was, uh, you know, drawn up in that spirit. So in a sense, it was 
uh, it came after ASEAN, but ASEAN initially was a security setup, uh, then evolved, uh, transformed itself into an economic uh, sort of uh, block. Uh, SARC was a late start, um, started well, uh, even though it started late, um, had some early progress, uh, but now has fizzled out, uh, largely because of Indo-Pakistan sort of hostilities. And this is what has led to many sub-regional initiatives now, you know. But on the bilateral front, Pakistan-Sri Lanka, there's a nice relationship. India-Sri Lanka is a, is a good relationship. Uh, Bangladesh-India has improved a lot. Nepal-India often a fraught relationship. Uh, we see India as a big brother. Uh, that also is now in a very constructive mood, despite some hiccups on the border, etc. And Bhutan-India was always positive. Now the question I pose is, all these vibrant, positive, bilateral relationships, can they be uh, quadrilateralized? You know, can they be, uh, can they be sub-regional and they act as a stepping stone to a much larger regional and even a global uh, vision. Uh, you've been talking about the positive bilateral relations, but we're talking here about how we can uh, gel it into regional integration. In that case, is there a possibility now that Sri Lanka is looking at enhanced FTAs with countries where negotiating a Thailand FTA? and also the uh, comprehensive agreements to the Indo-Lanka agreement, and even with China. With all that, Sri Lanka is also aspiring to be a hub status for the region, and I believe South Asia is also on the cards. What potential is there to really bring the region together to be a trading, maritime, or even an economic hub for the region? Oh, uh, you know, Sri Lanka engaging bilaterally outside of South Asia is also uh, a positive thing for Sri Lanka. You know, it opens big markets for your products. So if you have a preferential market access uh, to, uh, to Southeast Asian economies, uh, Thailand is a pretty big economy, China is huge. Um, that's a good opportunity for your products, you know, not just for your tea and uh, coconuts and rubber and garments, uh, but even for IT products, right? A lot of the digitalization uh, is there. And to bring in tourists from those sort of growing middle-income countries. But there's another aspect uh, to this, uh, that other investors seeking to uh, enter the Chinese market could make Sri Lanka as the base, yeah. right? If you came here, located your industries here, let's say a Polish firm, you know, or an Argentinian firm or a factory would be located here, uh, they would need to add a degree of value, uh, you know, maybe 15, 20, 25 percent here. So that could be Sri Lankan labor force getting employment. Then it becomes a made in Sri Lanka product, even irrespective of the investor, and gaining preferential market access to these large markets. Many countries have done that. You know, the fact that there is an Israel-US free trade agreement or a Jordan-United States free trade agreement meant that many industries have located in Jordan to have access through Jordan to the massive United States market. Now, these countries would never have had a direct BTA or a FTA with, uh, with the United States. It's very cumbersome. It's, you know, you, you need to be on the sort of geopolitical priority, etc. And not all countries are on that list. But similarly with Africa, you know, United States gave something not on a bilateral reciprocal basis, but on a unilateral preference for Africa. African Growth and Opportunity Act. You know what happened? Then all the Chinese and the Pakistani investors were actually locating in Africa to get access to the United States. So free trade is a very nuanced, complex game. It's not just a bilateral you know, signing of uh, agreement. It can get the economy uh, in motion. There are, there's a flip side that policymakers need to watch out for. When you enter into a BTA, the other party will also want things that you may not be ready to give yet, right? And this is 
pro partly a problem with uh, when you have asymmetric trade relationships. When you do a trade agreement with a very rich country, they want your, let's say, services sectors opened up and the entire telecom opened up, logistics opened up, you know, airlines opened up, even media opened up and you may not be ready when you are at lower levels of income. Uh, but oftentimes you feel as a country that this is a price worth paying. I give some access to sectors of interest to them to have a more preferential, a better market access for products of interest to us. That's when you sort of uh, uh, work out a win-win uh, trade agreement. But it is, uh, I am happy that Sri Lanka is looking at, at countries uh, which are comparable in uh, per capita income, like Vietnam, let's say, uh, but also much uh, uh, slightly higher, not radically higher, so that, that the degree of asymmetry is lessened. Uh, we're seeking inroads into new markets, but at the same time enhancing uh, trade opportunities with existing markets. Um, but in terms of investments, uh, we're talking about barriers to trade, ease of doing business in Sri Lanka. Is this common across the region? Or is Sri Lanka behind in enabling a smooth entry for investment? Sri Lanka and the rest of South Asia are all behind on this because we carry that baggage of a state control, regulation, private sector guys are, you know, are often crooks. We need to control them, regulate them and stop them and monitor them and all that. That's not the right attitude, right? I mean, the bad folks, you know, let the, uh, there be fair rules of the game. Uh, which will catch up to them and you know they will face the law right but you can't use a f minority of an experiment uh, sort of uh, a sample to then you know blacklist the entire community and this is where i think our attitudes have been quite backward in south asia generally if you look at the doing business indicators of the world bank which was suspended for a year or two and is coming back again in a different guise you know it tracks the life cycle of a firm right from the time you decide to get started as a private enterprise and then you know how the licensing and the construction permits how you trade paying taxes whether you protect minority investors or not whether you trade and after you shut down let's say you you're bankrupt how easy it is to get out of that bankruptcy how do you deal with the insolvency you know so it's a complete life cycle and on those measures doing indicators measures you know it's nicely benchmarked against other countries and it's very clear that sri lanka is behind uh, Nepal used to be behind. Uh, India made a fast progress on that. Uh, and uh, I think uh, those kind of global benchmarking exercise tell you uh, on which indicators are behind. And what struck me at the time, the last indicators that I checked, you know, a country like Rwanda was way ahead of Sri Lanka, even though on per capita terms, Rwanda is still, you know, very much, uh, uh, very much poorer. What are they doing different? It's just reforms, it's just reforms. And so on all the sort of 10 pillars, for example, uh, from getting started to solve, uh, you know, tackling insolvency, on, on this life cycle, all the indicators that matter to doing business, um, they were enacting new regulations, scrapping procedures, making it easy, digitalizing things. So, you know, once you take away the discretionary authority of the middlemen, of the bureaucrats, you know, things move fast, right? And uh, Singapore and New Zealand and Finland and we're not often talking about the US and UK only you know smaller reforming reform in Israel the you know startup nation uh, as, as, as it's been called so uh, I think there's a lot to learn from these smaller fast-moving reform oriented countries and just mimic that copy that you know because a lot of the reforms are still low-hanging it's stroke of the pen uh, reforms what becomes harder to do is the institutional reforms, and this is where Sri Lanka is stuck at, right? It may be, you know, abolishing 
many of uh, the, uh, the, the, the state entities. It may be downsizing and retrenchment of you know, things that you know are bloated um, and your tax base is not big enough to sustain it and you are even having to borrow to even sustain current expenditures let alone undertake capital expenditures. So I think uh, and this is where ultimately good economics originates from good politics and, and visionary leadership and countries that have made it uh, have done it through that. Right? Lee Kuan Yew's famous examples, I actually, you know, there's a lot of ur urban legend and myth on what Lee Kuan Yew is supposed to have said when he visited Sri Lanka in the 50s and the 60s. But the actual quotes were very inspiring, you know, is, oh, uh, you know, the clean sort of, uh, obviously is referring to the colonial architecture, etc. Sterling reserves he talks about some of the visionary leaders that you had around the time of independence and a slow sort of slide into ethno-nationalism, etc. He's already warned that in the 60s, you know. And uh, these issues, uh, and of course, he then w goes on to lead Sri uh, Singapore and, you know, uh, becomes this. Uh, but Sri Lanka and Singapore were on the same pace at one time. And uh, of course, you, you had a long, uh, you know, uh, uh, brush with, uh, with a terrible conflict and all that. But um, what led to that and how you came out of it, etc., also had as implications for the economic fortunes of this country. But nonetheless, uh, Indivari, I want to remind that Sri Lanka is still a bright spot in South Asia, right? An early reformer, all the investments in women's empowerment that happened here, health and education. When I was a student of economics at uh, the London School of Economics and at Harvard, you know, Sri Lanka used to come as an example, prominent example, Amartya Sen always cited Sri Lanka. But you did, I think, lose that early momentum, uh, partly because of bad, bad governance and politics, uh, political choices that have been made. That's truly unfortunate for the country, for the region. But you have all but, the fundamentals to really take off again, you know, the location, mm -hmm. the products, uh, the people and the diaspora, you know, it's all there. What would it take to trigger and then sustain that high rates of growth? Leadership that can carry through a whole slew of reforms, some of which might be unpopular, but you have to swallow it if you really want to be the Singapore of South Asia again. Uh, certainly, and I will say, as you, as you mentioned before, make use of this crisis as an opportunity, as a springboard for development. Uh, before we wrap up, I'd like to touch upon, you know, a little about Nepal-Sri Lanka <laughs> relations. We've missed out on talking about that. You, you lived in Sri Lanka for two years. Uh, back in 2006? Five, five, five six, and yeah. six. Okay. Just after the Boxing Day tsunami, I came here mm -hmm. and I, I, I lived here for two years, yeah. And that was in your capacity with the UN. UN, I was an economist with the UNDP uh, regional program. So I was located in Colombo, mm -hmm. but I covered the entire region. So I used yeah. to travel quite a bit uh, from Colombo. And I remember taking an apartment on Duplication Road and you know, jogging along the ocean and it was a beautiful time. So, so what, what took you to become um, a member of parliament in Nepal <laughs> from an economist to parliament? So that's an interesting question. Yeah. So I always had uh, this um, uh, fascination with public uh, policy uh, and public affairs. And, uh, you know, I was a good student in high school and the parental and the societal choice was for good students to either become a doctor or an engineer. Maybe the preference is the same here in Sri Lanka too. But I chose to do economics from the earliest days. So I departed from that conventional path. And, uh, and the point of being an economist was to you know, really take uh, a look at the entire economy and society and how to lift uh, country's uh, well-being, collective well-being and individual living standards, etc. So that excited me, right? Why are some countries richer? than others. That's, you know, a philosophically a very profound
question to tackle. And I was always intrigued by that. And the opportunities that I got, uh, you know, to study at LSE, Harvard, later ANU, uh, and then work in international organizations. So it gave me that rich uh, foundation and experiences, skills, uh, the way to look at the world, uh, understand it, assess it differently. And I said, hang on, but I come from a very modest, humble background in Nepal. You know, I was born in a village in Gorkha in, in the west of uh, Nepal. I've had this uh, uh, privilege of uh, you know, seeing the world, understanding uh, the world, uh, studying at the best institutions, working at the best institutions. Let me take some of this back to my own country and try it out. You know. It's not easy. Uh, I recently took a plunge into electoral politics. I contested a very, uh, very uh, charged sort of uh, election uh, in, uh, in a district called Tanahu. Uh, but I, I won and I, I'm now serving my first term in parliament. But the politics is a noble profession. It can be a noble profession. profession. It has been corrupted. It has been per perverted. And, you know, um, and we need to fight that because ultimately, as I have been highlighting, good economics originates from good politics. And if we can clean this up, if you have good people in politics, a lot of the other education, social protection, health, environment, climate change, physical infrastructure, uh, uh, you know, uh, follows from good, uh, good uh, leadership and good politics. Uh, I'm told we don't have much time, but one last question. Uh, I'll, I'll bring a few points together from what you've mentioned. Uh, energy integration, Sri Lanka is also looking at uh, um, an energy grid with India, the rest of the region, and we know that Nepal also has um, has has uh, ventured into this area. Um, that and how Sri Lanka and Nepal can really work together. We're looking at bilateral relations, yes, but something that would uh, help the region come together. Create an investment in products that are of interest uh, to us, right? So things Sri Lanka can export to Nepal, then that we already import from other countries. There's something to look look there, and products that Nepal can send to Sri Lanka. Let's explore that. The but the, because of the distance and the connectivity is still not firm. You know, the only the air connectivity is very nascent and quite expensive. Um, I think uh, the people-to-people -people ties, and we have uh, Lumbini, yeah. right? Lumbini is in Nepal, and uh, there's a. Uh, brand new airport that's come up next to Lumbini. So I hope the air connectivities can be thickened, can be, uh, can be the made more frequent and affordable for even average middle class Sri Lankans to be able to fly and visit, uh, visit Lumbini and pay respects to Lord Buddha. And while in Lumbini, then also uh, make Nepal uh, a tourist destination. It's a beautiful country, the Himalayas, you know. So from the Himalayas to the oceans, you know, we have, we can envision uh, this uh, this people-to-people -people ties on other fronts, on education, on health, on banking and finance. Maybe there are areas of cooperation. I remember there's a Merchant Bank of Sri Lanka which had invested in Kathmandu a while ago. So these things can be forged and it's easier because Sri Lanka going into India, this big, big country can be overwhelming. Nepal and Sri Lanka are a similar size, right? You are 22 million, we are 30 million. Uh, we're similar sized economies. In fact, the two countries that are almost uh, identical are Nepal and Sri Lanka in terms of economic and population. Economic your per capita income is higher, but population size is similar. So that's there. Uh, and uh, on energy cooperation, well, I know you invested a lot on the uh, solar, the renewables uh, in the north of Sri Lanka, maybe with, a, with an eye for the Indian market, etc. But the hydro grid that we are building in the northeast part of South Asia, Bhutan, Bangladesh, Nepal, and that, that has a tremendous 
potential, right? We have, uh, in an era of climate change, India needs to displace its dirty sources of fuel, and as it becomes an economic powerhouse, increasingly it needs to transition to clean sources of fuel. So, and hydro, Nepal's hydro, the Himalayan rivers, I think will be very important. But once our energy, electrons start flowing in the Indian grid, it becomes fungible, you see. So, what that means is, then Sri Lanka also getting connected. So, it becomes a sort of a regional grid electricity market where you can even trade instantly, right, depending on prices and, you know, the flows. And that's the vision we have uh, for the future. So, physical connectivity through energy, digital, roads, rail, uh, you know, air, etc. And then the software connectivity that will then enable people to people interactions through businesses as well as uh, for uh, tourism and other purposes. You met the president uh, this time. Would you be uh, looking forward to s similar engagements or to return to Sri Lanka? Oh, absolutely. I'm, as I mentioned, I love Sri Lanka. And uh, any excuse that I can find uh, to come back here on, on the next flight uh, out. Thank you very much, Dr. Wagler, for your time. Um, busy schedule, I know. But thank you for sharing your expertise. Uh, a pleasure, Indiwari. Thank you. We had with us Dr. Swadnim Wagler, um, Member of Parliament of Nepal and chairs the Institute of Integrated Development Studies, a South Asian policy think tank established in Kathmandu in 1979. And Dr. Wagle is the former Chief Economic Advisor of the UNDP Regional Bureau for Asia and the Pacific in New York, covering 36 countries. Thank you. We'll see you again next week with yet another discussion at Hyde Park on Other Derana 24. Thank you for watching. Have a pleasant evening. Good night. Mm -hmm.